Hello, everyone, and welcome to another special episode of the Crystal Core Radio Podcast. Brian and Chris breaking down the latest Final Fantasy news. This is relating to Final Fantasy 16 and even 14, as Yoshi P has given a recent and long interview uh, that has been wonderfully translated. So we do thank Rena uh, for their work in translating this. I'll include a link to the Google document as well. If you guys want to just go read it for yourself, uh, we always want to make sure we credit our sources and today we are live both here on YouTube and Twitch talking about this interview, uh, talking about obviously what's going on with Savage Prague as well uh, with the with the one week delay. Uh, so uh, it's going to be a really good show. Uh, Chris, do you have anything you want to shout out before we actually dive uh, full into the episode itself? Uh, guys, my last big lore week, I finished Heavensward for my first time. Base Heavensward. So next week on stream, we are uh, moving to a new stream schedule in september where i'll be live five days a week brian will be live in the evenings on friday and and elsewhere so like lots lots (laughs) more stream hours i'll be taking the last week off in september because my wife and i've been married 10 years and we wanted to take some time this year and this is when it works for our work schedule so that's when we're doing it um so maybe we'll get to have dinner or something together i I don't know nothing nothing too crazy nothing Uh, just 10 years it's just a decade just time yeah Uh, to celebrate time and uh so next week we'll be doing post heaven's word think story uh i don't know i've, I've got a sherpa kind of making sure to guide me through spoiler free to have a layout to make sure i have kind of a relatively optimal experience it's a long time story skipper um as we take on these additional streams this month um so should be a really really good september yeah oh dude september is gonna be really just absolutely ludicrous because it's going to get us closer to obviously the october updates uh for final fantasy and if you guys have uh, been seeing and paying attention to the news that i've been thrilled about uh new world uh, just talking about their brimstone sands update coming also in october so worst case scenario for me we're probably going to cover some of that later on in this episode as well as we delve guild into wars. yeah guild wars 2 guild wars just hit 10 years they have been doing all sorts of giveaways they just did a bunch of stream giveaways they gave like 10 to 20 dollars worth of value to everybody yeah. that watched all that they just i logged in today they gave me a free mount skin um they your choice you get a you get an item you open it up and it lets you choose from any mount skin off the store like it, it's the whole thing's awesome They've are you doing, uh are you are you gonna give your wife a copy of guild wars to celebrate your 10th and its 10th anniversary um, when we met, this game was if out. I want a second 10th. Yeah. Uh, that's probably best to not say, I need you to now take on MMOs or else. You want another round, another decade. You got to stick with us. We got, yeah, we got another, another MMO. She wants yeah. an MMO in her life. She, she knows where to go. She knows exactly where to go. All right. Wow goes into pre-patch this week. So as we have the longest intro oh, yeah. of the show here, Wow goes into pre-patch, which is really exciting. Pre-patch is a really fun time. Uh, to pick up wow so for anybody that's been like you know i've always been kind of curious about wow um the best time to play wow in my opinion the single best time um in if just in insert any expansion just x is from pre-patch through like the first two months of launch looks Mm. like launch is going to be in november okay um and so from like now to january is like the time that is like a casual player like if i were just going to get somebody in this is when i think it'd be really fun and exciting to get in and then come january We'll let the cards fall where there are. The honeymoon phase will be over, and we'll yeah. see if, if Dragonflight's off to good, good, what's, good. What's your over under on the uh, why I quit Dragonflight to go to Final Fantasy fourteen? Like, is that is that going to be the like a trend? Because we've seen that happen with every WoW expansion, uh, and it's uh, in my mind. I, I just get tickled by that that title. In fact, I was kind of memeing on it today over on Ginger fourteen. So, 
Well, what's the over under January? Uh, d- is that the new wave? Is that the, is that another exodus or is that just like, holy crap, they actually did I, I, it. I think if you want to be clickbaity, I think you're a little late. If you post that video in January, I think you need to hate it a little sooner. Uh, you want to kind of ride that trend. Um, so it's probably best if you let your bitterness record a video. Um, I, ideally maybe like if it releases, uh, 1128, maybe that's what you do. Like, you know, you celebrate Christmas morning with your family. You have, you're sitting down to a nice dinner turkey ham whatever's in the oven sit down record your thoughts get yourself up into a frenzy hate the game for a whole bunch of reasons that um, have been the same for the last 15 years and then record that release it uh and then let that ride you into the new year so i think if you're trying to hate dragonflight um late december is probably a really optimal algorithmic time to to decide that you suddenly hate wow and that 14 is doing well yeah that's also uh, almost kind of a perfect time um <laughs> namely because that's where like a lot of advertisers have the money people take say oh, yeah youtubers should take january off so if you if you're going if you're in it for the money yeah uh, exactly. like here's the here's the here, here's the roadmap for it now oh yeah after- hundred thousand views in february you should have just picked up 5,000 views in December. Like, yeah. what are you doing? What are you doing, man? Like, come on. Like, <laughs> that's Bush League, man. Bush League. Let's go. Um, now, uh, as we dive into this post itself, note again, the links will be in the description for you guys to go enjoy. Also, for some reason, I've partnered with uh, Secret Labs. I've been using their chair for a long time. Use the command share in chat or check the description if you want to support me and also pick up a really great gaming chair they don't sponsor me technically it's just an affiliate link so i'm just so thrilled finally after so many years of me just like people asking hey what do you think about your chair i was like i love it and then they're like hey all right let's make a let's make a deal um so on that note we've got a lot to cover uh let's go ahead and dive in into it our normal fashion i'll go ahead and increase the font size so for those of you uh reading along the underline makes it feel like i like downloaded a white paper i know guys yeah it's it's excellent um also if you guys uh, check the links in the description and you want just the audio version of these uh these uh, videos these podcasts themselves uh you can subscribe everywhere audio forms are uh, made so be sure to leave us a review if you do all right so, uh, Chris, why don't you get us started, and then we'll just we'll just kind of tag team this. So, Final Fantasy 16 is scheduled for release by Square Enix on the PlayStation 5. Please, God, don't lock it there forever and ever. Yeah. Uh, in summer 2023, can we? Uh, the recently <laughs> unveiled second trailer makes mention of an all-out icon war and has caused quite a stir in the gaming community. The tale takes place in uh, Valisthea a region where international power is kept in check by the mother crystals every nation possesses. Great crystalline structures scattered throughout the land. Each country is also host to a dominant, an individual chosen by the mother crystal to harbor the power of an icon. From one generation to the next, this role is passed down along with the ability to summon the dread beast from the dominant's own flesh. The story revolves around Clive Rosfield, Uh, Despite being the firstborn prince of the Grand Duchy of Rosaria, he failed to awaken as the dominant of Phoenix, with the distinction falling instead to his younger brother Joshua. It would seem the tragedy that befalls these siblings lies at the heart of the game's story. In the following text, we present an interview with Final Fantasy XVI's producer, Naoki Yoshida. So even before Stormblood's release, core members of the team were already focusing in on Final Fantasy XIV. Um, do you want to play the role of Yoshi P for this uh, for this video itself, and I'll do the interviewer questions? Yes. Yeah. Just be aware that around that time he was already taking interviews, and sometimes people would say like at FanFest, like, "Hey, if you could build another game, what would it be?" And he's like, "Well, I'm here to talk about 14, but like hypothetically." hypothetically. And then he would and then he would go on this whole tirade about like hypothetically, and then he'd have all these specifics. And in hindsight, 
that was Final Fantasy 16. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was telling us all about it. Yes. Uh. All right. It's a pleasure to meet with you today. Let's start off by talking about that second trailer that you just unveiled. Well, that sounds good. Uh, I'll begin by saying I'm a bit relieved to finally have it out. The trailer felt like it was all about condensing the various things that you had to show. The approach we took when making this most recent trailer was to leave its viewers feeling they'd just seen something amazing, despite not having a grasp of the game's mechanics yet. Should you do an evil laugh? <laughs> it actually feels like he's making fun of him. Like, the idea was to leave him feeling like, wow, they knew what it was. Mm -hmm. But we told them nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we were actually intending to release it back in March. And we're on the cusp of doing so. However, we re reassessed that plan in light of the world events and decided to postpone it until later. Ah, so that's what happened. I can definitely see how the original time frame might have been less than optimal. I was invited to comment on the trailer directly at Sony's State of Play, the official event where this most recent video was unveiled. I explained that our intention was to present the public with what we as creators could do now in the current climate. It's wild how releasing a single piece of information about a game can get tangled up in all sorts of other affairs. Even now, it seems like the state of the world has yet to improve, and difficult situations continue to arise day after day. But I think what we can try to do about that is produce games to the best of our abilities, and bring joy to those who play them. That's the message we'd like to be upfront about with the public before proceeding with the rest of development. I see. Now I'd like to move on and finally talk about 16 proper. But first, I've noticed quite a lot of the staff that is made up of members from Final Fantasy XIV's initial development team. Does this have anything to do with how they ended up working on this project? Toward the end of developing Final Fantasy XIV's Heavensward expansion, uh, the game's first expansion released June 23rd, 2005, critically acclaimed, available in the free trial up to level 60. Yeah, 2015, today. but uh, yeah, they, they, uh, get, they got that one wrong. <laughs> yeah, so I don't think it's 2005. Yeah, 2005 is like, yeah. that's that's vanilla WoW, right? Yeah, 2015 uh, is probably what they meant to write. way late. Okay. Uh, typos. Uh, I was approached by the company's president to see if Creative Business Unit 3 might be able to create the next numbered game in the series, Final Fantasy 16. It was a surprise I wasn't expecting. But then again, Final Fantasy VII Remake had already been announced at the time and Creative Business Unit 1, which was responsible for creating the majority of the series' numbered titles up to that point, had their hands full with the new project. If we had to wait for Final Fantasy VII-R to be finished, then it would be quite a long time before the next mainline Final Fantasy title would be created. That was my objective impression of things, at least. It certainly seems unlikely that Creative Bu uh, Business Unit 1 would have been able to create 16, but 14 is an MMO, which means it's the type of game that needs to constantly be updated. I imagine it would be a considerable challenge for Business Unit 3 to try to develop 16 while also keeping up with 14. That's very true. But we were overjoyed to receive such recognition as part of the company, and we began development with the promise that we do our very best. At the time, we were still in the process of growing our flagship title, Final Fantasy XIV, so instead of blazing ahead with 16's development, we decided to proceed little by little. We started 16 with a small core staff and committed ourselves first to creating foundational design and completing the scenario. 
By the time we had started making Stormblood, the second expansion released in 2017, director Hiroshi Taki, uh, scenario writer uh, Kazutoto Mahiro, and system designer uh, Mitsutoshi Gondai had already passed on their duties with Final Fantasy XIV and switched over to working on 16 in earnest. Hmm. So you're saying they already stepped away from 14 by the time Stormblood came out? When I look online, I see 14 fans who've passionately supported the game for years, leaving comments like, I sort of miss him, you know? <laughs> Gondai was juggling both projects for a while. He was there for Stormblood, Shadowbringers, uh, and Endwalker. Uh, but now his name's uh, a member of the Final Fantasy 16 staff. He's, he's there to stay. Even so, 14 saw its way through a truly sensational arc with Shadowbringers and Endwalker. Absolutely. That's how strong Final Fantasy XIV's current team is. Final Fantasy XVI started off with only three members, Take Mahiro and Gondai, but the agreement uh, was that no more would be added until the game's scenario was completed. So it's not like there was some sudden exodus to go work on sixteen. Speaking of Takai, The Last Remnant is a real masterpiece of his as a director. I personally rank it among the three best JRPGs ever released. That makes me happy to hear. Thank you for saying so. At the time, I also think that it's a game with a lot of sharp edges, so to speak. But part of the idea behind Final Fantasy's brand is to make games that can be enjoyed by a wide range of people. With that in mind, I'm curious to know why Takai was appointed as director for this title. I know from experience that being the one responsible for creating a mainline Final Fantasy game entails more than your average amount of pressure. That strong sense of obligation comes not only from the fans and gamers, but from the members of your staff. It therefore requires someone with a certain amount of grit get going into things. I was already serving as both producer and director for 14, and it was a time at which I was vital. I keep growing in those positions. When the company approached me and asked about 16, I responded that if I were to direct this game, I'd be doing a, dis uh, a discourtes discourtesy, is that a word? Mm -hmm. uh, both to its project leads and to its fans. I countered by suggesting Takai for the role based on his popularity in the company. I see what you're saying. So Takai possessed both uh, the popularity and the grit needed to perform the job in your stead. As a matter of fact, back at the very beginning when we were rebuilding Final Fantasy XIV, it was Takai who told me I should also work as the game's producer in addition to directing it. Takai is the sort of person who can think on his feet like that and say what's on his mind. The sort of person everyone can get behind. So when I asked him what his thoughts were about directing sixteen, he said, it's not only a big responsibility, but so long as you're there to back me up as producer, I'll give it my best shot. That's the major part of why he was selected. Incidentally, I'd say that Final Fantasy, as it is now, has moved quite far away from being the type of RPG that can be enjoyed by a wide range of people, as you put it. In what respect? Well, after the company came to talk to us about 16, we conducted a thorough investigation into the current state of the series. Being in charge of Final Fantasy XIV has seen me skipping around the globe, having countless conversations with fans and gamers. There are all sorts of things that players in countries outside of Japan think about and anticipate from Final Fantasy XIV. However, their responses contain a daunting degree of variation. Ah, I think I know what you mean. I'm one of those fans, after all. When you stop to think about it, it's only natural. Each Final Fantasy title features a different world and lore, a different battle system, different characters, and a different overall sense of direction. You're right. And then you have even bigger outliers like Final Fantasy XIV. 
Right. Uh, but the <laughs> reason for that is that when I took over as Final Fantasy XIV's director, uh, Katasi told me, when it comes to Final Fantasy, the game that carries the series' legacy is whichever one the director at the time thinks will be the best. Therefore, you shouldn't let anything hold you back. After hearing those words, I decided to position Final Fantasy XIV as a fan service title. And because it belonged to the MMORPG genre, I was able to run with an idea nobody had ever tried before and create a sort of Final Fantasy theme park. And because of that, you were able to get feedback from fans all around the world thanking you for including this or that numbered Final Fantasy title somewhere in Final Fantasy XIV. With Final Fantasy, instead of saying they they like the series as a whole, fans give differing responses like, I like Final Fantasy VII, or I like Final Fantasy X. Final Fantasy XII is the best. No, no, you're all wrong. It's an online game, but Final Fantasy XI takes the cake. Hell yeah. <laughs> there are also a lot of people whose first contact with the series was through Final Fantasy XIV, and so the features they're looking for in a Final Fantasy game are really varied. I'm partial to all the Final Fantasy games, but I can still understand how you'd get that sort of varied feedback. Partial. Uh, I specifically like all of them. Uh, people, <laughs> people tell us things like they'd wish uh, Final Fantasy would stick with command-style battles. Even now, after the announcement of Final Fantasy 16, I still come across this opinion that action combat can't be done with Final Fantasy. And so we should instead use command style battles rather than because any one thing is good or bad. I think these varied opinions stem from the sheer number of different Final Fantasy games that have been created. That said, I feel like it would be impossible to produce a game that satisfies everyone's demands. Right. After all, there's nothing on this planet that absolutely everyone is in agreement about. We'd like to satisfy as many of those expectations as possible, but when we conducted research on a global scale, the answers were received were even more disparate. While there were many who called Final Fantasy a legendary RPG franchise with moving stories, other words and phrases came up in reference to the series images such as cult and classic, <laughs> as well as the more frank indictment of geared towards children. Uh, this inquiry was conducted by a separate survey company, so we consider the results to be objective. I don't personally feel like the series is geared towards children, but it sounds like not a few uh, people around the world have had this image in their heads. And to, before you let Yoshi P answer on that, just kind of as an aside, like that's one of the reasons why I'm really excited that they're allowing this game to get an M rated. Uh, when you look at games like The Witcher and a lot of beloved RPGs right now, they are really geared more towards, I, I would say, like, you know 16 plus in terms of age where it felt like that team rating we see it in final fantasy 14 all the time it limits the level of interaction and detail that they can actually lean into in various different things it does limit the kind of stories that they can tell and i think from an rpg perspective there will always be an ebb and flow when it comes to like what people are hungry for but it felt like 14 uh, final fantasy has also been actually kind of it actually shackled itself by the rating which it was going for and it'll be interesting to see if this is well received what do you think i mean it still tackles a surprising amount of adult stuff mm -hmm. um everything from last night when i was pentamelding on stream i didn't even notice and somebody said did you know there's a giant beer butt above your head uh <laughs> to like some of the really dark things tackled in the storyline from abuse to uh you know some pretty severe violence and genocide and like really adult topics that 
when taught in school are oftentimes kind of pared back to just core details. And, and as you maybe study the same event more and more in school, by the time you get into that upper high school level or you get into the collegiate level, you're really starting to see a lot of context and starting to see a lot of the gray and being like, OK, there were atrocities committed that like there is context to those and we can talk about them in more detail now. Um, but I think from a gaming standpoint, it's it's really honest uh, to some of these stories to be able to just start there uh, with that 20 to 40 year old gamer in mind uh, where a lot of us now sit. So as we have a more diverse, I mean, back in the 80s, mm -hmm. most gamers were kids, um, right. but it's been since the 80s. And so a lot of us have you know aged. And so it is nice to have games that kind of suit each stage of gamer. Um, and it's neat to see a core numbered Final Fantasy tackle that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'll let you uh, pick up with Yoshi P. The results of our research aren't all inclusive, but we thought it was important to have a very good idea of how everyone currently regards Final Fantasy and what they're looking for in its games. On top of that, as Final Fantasy 16's producer, I've been involved since the conceptual stage back during the project's launch. One of the first things I told everyone at the beginning was that there was no way we'd be able to fulfill everyone's requests, and so we should avoid taking half measures. I see. So you made an effort to leave that expectation behind right from the start. We also acknowledged that it would likely be beyond our capacity to do so anyway. As technology continues to improve, competing producers around the world are struggling to succeed by pouring their studio's energy into one big title, hoping to make one big breakthrough with one big focus. If we were to adopt the arguably arrogant approach of making a game that included everything everyone is looking for it could take as many as 10 or 15 years to produce in that case the game would become more and more outdated as we continue working on it which i imagine is not something people are seeking in final fantasy 16. now i want to come back to that idea here uh, as we after we get through the interview itself but just kind of put a bullet point in your head chat as well as chris because i'd like to talk about that 10 to 15 year anyway the gap between releases would end up being that big huh almost like he's speaking from some sort of company or at least genre experience. Yeah. Uh, without a doubt, the period between mainline releases has become much longer than it used to be. And because of that widening window between releases, we've been unable to deliver a gaming experience that's really stuck in the middle and high school students during most of their most impressionable years. I think that's left the franchises in quite a lurch. I'd like to create something that gamers in their early mid-teens will want to play, even if it's a little demanding in terms of maturity, and will leave them thinking, that was amazing. I want that experience to inspire players and to consider joining Square Enix or make games on their own. I think that's the sort of product Final Fantasy has to become. I understand where you're coming from. I also wanted to become a game creator after playing the original Dragon Quest way back in when. In the end, I became someone who communicates information about games as opposed to making them, but I'd love for there to be a new title that inspires people to seek a job in the industry. Setting mechanics aside, all Final Fantasy games since the first in its series share a certain attributes. An epic story, a cinematic gaming experience, a drama-filled narrative, high-quality graphics, and magnificent music. We want Chocobos and Moogles to show up as well. We want to leverage our abilities in time allotted to us and create a game that resonates with multiple generations of gamers. It's for that reason we decided not to throw in everything but the kitchen sink. We wanted something that would stick with the new players and retain classic Final Fantasy elements, but also appeal to adults 
who may have moved away from the series in a, a little in recent years. We thought, what would about another new Final Fantasy for people in their 30s or their 40s who have come to know the harshness of reality? With these considerations in mind, we proceed to design the game. In other words, this is a Final Fantasy game with sharp edges? That's right. I'm sorry for rambling on here with my reply, but I think that's what we've come up with is a Final Fantasy game with an extremely clear and singular sense of purpose. That said, it may not be a Final Fantasy title that satisfies everyone's requests. I thought it would be a good idea to clearly convey this point to all those who are fans of the series. Now, in the next section in his day's title, The Pain the Developers Wish to Express, even if it means ra uh, raising the rating. I want to kind of come back to that here and just take a kind of a, a pause um, in the in the discussion, talking about the 30, uh, the, the 10 to 15 year development cycle. I know that we've seen and felt that heavily within Square Enix as, as of recent, where uh, you look at Kingdom Hearts, you look at Final Fantasy VII R, you look at these development projects that seem was, how long was 15? 15 was all well, you could also say it was 10 but they ended up restarting it and from my experience it it. right well my experience also within development is that like you have hr issues at that point like how many of you guys listening to this right now and not that it doesn't happen but how many of y'all have been at a job for 10 years and 15 years or how many of y'all do you changed maybe your job three to five years you know things like that where there was this idea that you kind of had a you had the company man approach which is kind of ingrained in us from maybe the 60s and 70s from a cult like whether that was true or not or if that was just kind of like what we see on tv but like the reality is, is you got people that want to go do other things they want to work on new technology you know they want to release like games and things like that and yeah we usually like we and that's that's a huge thing you lose that resource you lose that aspect even where he starts this video off where he starts this interview off talking about how people who are integral into Final Fantasy XIV's rebirth are now on the 16 team and they've kind of consulted a little bit. So they've maintained and been able to keep that talent, but that talent also wants to work on 16 and maybe something else after that as well. And it's about kind of refining that. I think the problem that I see here though, like, cause he hits it on the on the head. I've seen Chad even mention like call of duty, like call of duty, like they can over franchise and deliver way too much, but it is, always that thing that you hit that hits you every year and in terms of the amount of time and development like i think the only way that square enix could really move forward with keeping final fantasy because it used to be like every year or two years new final fantasy game and that the gap has continued to grow and grow and grow and so they would have to start running multiple teams That's like what call of duty does they don't they don't develop yeah. a game in a year they have right. multiple teams running in series um i i i, I think when you think about it, just a career, just think about kind of where you're at. The idea that you would come out of college at 22 and get hired into an entry level position with no job experience. And in mm -hmm. 10 to 15 years, you still haven't completed a game, which means like when you go to apply for another job, like what have you done? Right. You don't have anything to show for it. You're still working on the same project under the same management structure. So are you supposed to grow within that role? In which case, like who hand like it, so now we have new people coming on 10, like five, 10 years into development. It's really hard. Um, so you bring up some good points there, but what happens with just technology? Mm -hmm. Think back yeah. 10 or 15 years within the hardware. You design this game within the constraints of hardware. And in the last 10 to 15 years, we've all moved to solid state drives. We've moved to a whole new generation of graphics cards. RAM is dirt cheap now in mass quantities. And so now all of a sudden, do you just let like, oh, well, we'll just throw bloat at it. But like, I didn't really design with the current hardware specs in mind. Console generations have advanced multiple times. So you design for like the specs that Sony put out 
15 years ago. That's yeah. insane. Uh, and so at some point you've got to just keep it moving. Uh, the enemy of, you know, the enemy of perfection, like that's, you just got to hit, you got to hit publish. You got to yeah. hit publish. Yeah. So I think that's, I think he has the right idea. Um, I think also, it's really it good like... for him to help set expectations yeah. because when he mm -hmm. talks about it like this, a lot of what he's also talking about is the, the cost of developing something quicker is that this isn't going to be the one game for everybody because we're going to release games more regularly. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not going to be for everybody because that's been the whole thing. People love right. 14 and they're like, okay, but like Yoshi P's career is built on saving or steering to a better direction franchises that doesn't mean he's inherently right. good at building something from the ground up and it doesn't mean something that he builds from the ground up will be reminiscent of anything that we've seen before because this is them and this is just him as a producer but like the idea is it's okay if people don't like 16 i i get really nervous personally when people see a trailer with mm -hmm. little to no gameplay the very first trailer and they're like i've already decided yeah, game's gonna game be out. an 11 of 10 yeah. my greatest game ever and like that puts the game in a spot where if it's anything yeah. less than that, suddenly a nine of 10 is bad. Right. Um, just let it be whatever yeah. it is. It's interesting. You know, you bring up the game for everybody, especially in 14's case. Like I would, I would make a kind of a counter argument. It's interesting how they seed a lot of final fantasy 11 references and names to appeal to that. But in terms of gameplay, uh, that kind of gameplay loop for those that are like trying to be, you know, the theme park for everybody is regulated to that of Boja and Eureka. So there's the offerings, but it's always kind of like when you talk to kind of the hardcore 11 player base, who still is playing 11, like they haven't found that invitation into the theme park that is that is Final Fantasy 14 specifically, but they still seed that in there, right? So it, 14 isn't also a replica of Final Fantasy 4, but it's an homage to it um, right. in various different degrees. And so it's like right. that is in of itself a, a challenge because... You go look at that. You look at even my own personal frustrations with Final Fantasy. It's like a lot of it's rooted like, gosh, like I love this aspect. Can I, I wish I, that aspect trickled into other areas, but it's also important. What I really like seeing here from his view on 16 is that, yeah, they're not going to try to make a game that would take 10 to 15 years. Just make a game. Like I want to play a new Final Fantasy game. <laughs> and then, you know what? I want to play another one. And if right. you guys can deliver that, honestly, like his, his insight into like, how long has it really been? Like almost you start to think about it. It's been over five years since 15 launched. Like that's, that's your, that's somebody's high school experience. I played, even if you liked it. right. I, in, in high years. school, I got to play seven and eight. I got to play nine. I think in college, like there was that aspect. So it was always something to be excited about, to talk about, and then to kind of debate on like, what is really like, Oh, that was a really good system or that wasn't even to this day. Like these arguments still go on. And yet you're having whole generations of, of people completely missing out on, I think one of the, the, the nice appeals of it. Um, but yeah, that's a, that has remained to be seen. So we'll have to explore that, uh, in, in some more. So, all right. I think it's time we jump into part two. The pain the developers wish to express, even if it means raising the rating. Now, as you mentioned, how you'd like the games to resonate with middle school and high school students. However, judging by the trailer alone, it feels like the game's geared more towards adults. <laughs> uh, likewise, the game's rating gives you the impression that it's a Final Fantasy intended for older audiences. I wasn't allowed to play M games until I was 17 in the house. What's the first R-rated friend's house? Yeah, what's the first R-rated movie you saw? You remember seeing? The first one I remember seeing, yeah. uh, Scream okay. on oh, VHS. Yeah. And my older brother let me fall asleep. He let me watch it with him. He was allowed to watch it. And he, and he let me fall asleep. And then I was found out there and he left it 
in the VHS and he let me get grounded for that instead of waking me up and moving me. He talked me into watching it and then let me get grounded. Oh man. That was scary. That was cool. a scary movie. The uh for me, I remember uh so my my parents took me to see Saving Private Ryan um in the theater. It's funny because I kind of was like my brother who is around your age. Uh, he actually saw an R-rated movie before I ever, ever was allowed to. I don't know if it was accidental or whatnot, but I was just like, yeah. But I remember my first R-rated movie was uh, Saving Private Ryan, which was wild. But yeah. Uh, all right. <laughs> so, as you know, we go out of our way to ensure Game Pass uh, uh, games pass the review process. But this time we've raised our target rating to mature, meaning 17 and older in overseas markets. We're doing our best to get away with everything we can in that age range. <laughs> the reason for this is that we're being very deliberate about crafting a work that can express pain, which I think can be both psychic and physical, uh, emotionally through the gameplay. Wow, so you've raised the rating to mature for a mainline title that's a bit of a surprise. The rating review process has become stricter and stricter over time. That's not how it feels. Uh, so that yeah. even if you're working with the same rating as before, uh, the range of what you can express is narrower than it used to be. Therefore, in order to broaden the range of what we can present to players, we chose to go with a higher rating this time. So you're aiming for something in that regard as well? When I say I hope the game resonates with middle and high school students, I don't mean to say that we're making a game to cater to them specifically. Middle schoolers and high schoolers, that is young adults in their early to mid-teens, are at an impressionable age. And if you, and I think that if you put everything you can into creating a story, it'll reach players of all generations. Words are a tricky thing. Maybe I'm not quite getting across what I truly mean to say here. But I, what I hope is that the game will remain somewhere in our young audience's hearts and minds. And later, after they've grown more, they can sort of link what they played to various life experiences. I myself was in that position. So even I've got the mindset of a middle school sophomore. <laughs> so uh, you take on something a little bit mature for your age by playing the game. And then when you go out into society, you come to understand what it was really about. Back in the day, it was the same for us. We watched things that were geared towards adults and in turn became more mature ourselves. I thought to myself, I doubt that sort of thing has changed much since then. So in that sense, I'd say the game caters neither to children nor adults. Rather, I want to approach things head on and give everything we've got to producing a game that will leave even teenagers feeling awed. By the way, which part of 16 would you say encapsulates uh, Tanaki's style? Games are created by combining high-tech elements and low-tech ideas. In many cases, those high-tech features inevitably forge staff to take on very difficult work. However, Takai enjoys a high level of confidence from our designers and artists, and together they're able to tackle these complex and demanding tasks in a skillful manner. I'd say this is inherent style he brings to the table. Actually, it's sort of the same with me, though I'm not as elegant about it. <laughs> Creative <laughs> Business Unit 3 is kind of like a pack of mangy strays. We're no good at prettying ourselves up, so we tend to come off as unrefined. We recently finished up all the visuals, so we've finally begun to give people a peek at things, but the production itself is quite raw. I'm expecting people to say somewhere along the way, hey, this isn't the sort of spectacle we should be getting with a Final Fantasy game. A pack of mangy strays. I guess that will be hard to find at home. 
But circling back to what makes a game Take-esque, uh, he comes from a VFX background. So he has a strong firsthand experience with what's good movement feels like and uh, what background, I lost my spot. What, what good, good VFX and sound effects look like and sound when they're actually controlling the game. Uh, so Soken has been formally announced as the main man behind the music. Will he be creating it all by himself? There are multiple people involved, but Soken is essentially at the helm and will be certain individuals he trusts to help arrange the tracks. It's safe to assume that most of the basic melodies are Soken's work. And all of this despite the number of tracks he's composed for 14 as well? It goes without saying that composing all of the tracks for Final Fantasy 16 while writing music for Final Fantasy 14 is an inordinate amount of work, but he's skillfully handling it by portioning things out in waves. Soken might be the most overworked of all of us, though. Soken is the type of artist who looks at the game experience to some degree and then uses what he sees to decide how intense or lively he should make things sound. Up till this point, the game's production has sort of been a work in progress. But now we finally reach the finishing stage of the project, which means Soken can really start pinning down the sounds he wants. Can you reveal the names of any of the people helping him to arrange the music? I know it's just asking for outlandish speculation, but right now I'm not at liberty to disclose the names of any staff members other than those that have already been announced. And not to sound like a broken record, but for any Final Fantasy XIV fans who feel worried, we've spent years carefully separating the teams and work that needs to be done. So please rest assured on that count. Except for Soken, that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except for him and me. Stormblood, Shadowbringers, Endwalker were all created by Final Fantasy XIV's current development staff so they are more than capable of standing on their own feet the majority of creative's business unit 3 is divided between final fantasy 14 and final fantasy 16. the staff continue to help each other out ensuring that both teams are functioning at 100 percent capacity by the way in its most recent revealed a release trailer you had a course seeing the names of the icons shiva titan bahamut and so on i thought that was a wonderfully entertaining touch whose idea was it to do that now, Sogan's idea. One of the themes of the second trailer we just unveiled, and also one of the game's big selling points, is this all-out war on the icons. The dominance in the icons serve as a key to the story, so we made sure to place them front and center in the video. At the end of the trailer, we were planning to have the names of each major icon show up on screen with a sort of thud, but Sogan was like, and we're already doing that. We might as well go all in and have the chorus shout the names of the icons. <laughs> <laughs> so is the second trailer all rendered in real time? I'm sorry about the confusion there. I know it's not really clear from the trailer which parts are gameplay, but believe it or not, about 95% of what you see in the trailer is real-time footage. It also makes no use of pre-rendered video. Pre-rendering is used sometimes with, uh, with some of the really large crowds and parts of the background, and there are a handful of sequences made with real-time compositing. I'd like for players to take a moment and imagine scenes of this quality moving in real-time with no loading required. By the power of PlayStation 5, I summon thee. <laughs> and hopefully PC. <laughs> Crossing fingers, we'll see. All right, on to the next section here. Uh, do you have any thoughts about what we just covered here, or do we want to just keep moving forward? I think from a pacing standpoint, um, I know Soken is overworked and has done incredible things, but I think Endwalker being a chance to look back gave a really logical time for a huge portion of the Endwalker soundtrack um, which is an enormous, enormous amount of songs, especially mm -hmm. as we get in like Pandemonium and stuff starts to sound really new. Um, but a, a lot of this stuff feels like 
remixes and re-releases of old songs, which means that um, he has a chance to kind of look back on work that's already been done uh, by him mm -hmm. and reimagine that uh, with him and his team. And so that's it. Endorker's timed really well for the fact that it looks like 16's just getting to the stage where he would be starting to do all the composition so that, you know, if you think of his brain as like having a composition side and like a mixing and, and all that side, like the composition side can shift to 16. And that didn't have to take away from 14 because we didn't need all new music for 14. It, it made a lot of sense to make these callbacks to coils, to make these callbacks to Heavensward, to make these, like it made a lot of sense for everything to kind of remind you of what got us here with it being the end of the saga. Mm -hmm. And then it sounds like 16 will kind of enter that next stage right as it comes time for the new saga of 14 to maybe need some of its own tracks. Um, so it it feels like they've done a great job of managing this. So as he talks about him and Soken being kind of overworked, um, they are, mm -hmm. but I think they've been really clever. And it's one of the, the resounding stats of things of 14. Every game has passionate devs. Every game have devs that care. But the ability to recognize the business side of it and just line things up so that the art has a chance to thrive is something that I think Yoshi P's team has that's really unique. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, uh, while we're here at this point, uh, thanks, guys, for the 21 likes who are watching us live. So if you're watching this as a VOD or live, uh, the likes really do help out the content within the algorithm. Also, leaving comments as well. It's massive, huge help. So... And thank you to Twitch for letting us now broadcast, Yay. letting Brian broadcast the recordings of this. Uh, he normally oh. handles these over to the YouTube side, and I can do it while I'm in the middle of managing a Twitch stream. Oh, so, man. So much Super better. awesome for me to have a stream that kind of takes a break to collab with him. And oh, awesome. Yeah. Dude, thank saves you, me thousands and of hours you. of work. And YouTube's live. It's getting better. Yeah. Slowly. <laughs> slowly. <laughs> All right. Let's continue on. Uh, from what we can see in the trailer, the combat looks totally action-oriented. We've made it completely real-time. We knew that, of course, this approach would have pros and cons, but we were very decisive in implementing it. For my part, I was raised on a command-style RPGs, but when I spoke with some of the younger gamers in Japan and abroad, they'd often tell me they didn't understand the command system. I don't understand what they mean by they don't understand. Well, that's exactly the reaction you'd get from people like us. The names of the commands are written right there. Attack means you attack. Right. And if you press cure, you, you cast cure. If you press fire, you cast fire. And so on and so forth. It seems like that's all there is to it. I was intrigued by this response, too. So I tried my best to get them to explain. He said that as a younger gamer these days, that you expect to press one button, you'll swing your sword. Expect to press another button, you'll cast a spell. There's a more direct link between input and action for them, especially with something like an FPS. Ah, so I see. So that's what they mean when they say they don't understand. Things started way back with the tabletop RPGs, and then computer RPGs arrived on the scene, replacing the role of the game master with an automated program. But there wasn't enough memory and the CPU and capacity wasn't up to the task of directly animating or visually representing the actions players wanted to execute. To get around these limitations, the idea of a command system was introduced. A command system sort of takes over for the GM role and asking the player for what they want to do. Exactly. 
But nowadays, the computers, as powerful as they are, it's become the norm for characters to move and act directly in response to controller input. For the generation of gamers who began playing after these sorts of games came commonplace, it's only intuitive that pressing X swings a sword or shoots a bullet. And so that's why they question the need to select a written command to perform those actions. And why they say they don't understand the command system. I spoke with a number of young gamers, and what they told me was that it isn't about whether the system is good or bad. It's that they don't really understand the logic behind why you'd use it. Meanwhile, they seem perfectly able to grasp the turn-based approach taken with board games like chess and Othello. As someone, something completely separate from the command system. It's kind, I'm kind of at a loss of words. <laughs> of course, the command system has certain unique advantages, but I can see where they're coming from. The Final Fantasy series is one of Square Onyx's most iconic IPs. The games require a high level of attention to graphical quality and volume of content and cost an exorbitant amount of money to develop. In turn, they of course need to generate a considerable profit for the company. If we only just break even, the scope of the series might be reduced going forward, or we could lose out on the chance to create another entry altogether. Therefore, we have to be very mindful when it comes to numbers. This time, we'd like once again to attract all players of all ages to our game. So out of consideration for the future, we thought it would be a good idea to make Final Fantasy that goes all in with action elements. We therefore made the strategic decision to fully pivot to an action-oriented system. Now, before we continue on, like in terms of that, like I don't have any issue with action-oriented. In fact, I've actually picked up Final Fantasy VII R on PC. I just haven't had a chance to play it yet, so I'm looking forward to seeing how that ultimately feels i feel like from what i've heard it feels way better than final fantasy 15's you know combat system a, a natural evolution so i'm hoping that 16 continues to build off that um i do prefer a little bit control so i'd love to see gambit or something like that in brought in for party members so that way you can kind of program kind of how you want them to be and kind of build out them with a role but personally speaking what i would still love to see is i'd love to see kind of a, a whether it's a we call it a mainline final fantasy game but a final fantasy branded game that is also turn-based right like when you start to look at things like octopath traveler uh you know and even like uh with triangle strategy like those games really appeal to me and they're not final fantasy branded which is fine but i still think that i'm glad that those games are actually getting work and and, and more and i love to see them actually kind of maybe kind of if you think about it end up having kind of a two-branching strategy where yeah maybe the final fantasy numbered series is this big mega etc but then you have the the 2d hd and they could still come out with turn-based Final Fantasy games uh, with great stories and great music, uh, you know, within that style. And I think they could actually probably put those out much easier than obviously the, the massive amount of work that it takes on these games. Would you be interested in like if they were uh, continue to release turn-based games or do you think that era is past? I think mainline numbered titles have to be that kind of like top 40 meta, you know, captures Twitch, YouTube, talked about broad broad scale widely appealing mm -hmm. uh the fact that it's m-rated already says like we're inherently restricting that audience so we have to really do well within the m-rated crowd because we are isolating anybody that prefers or or only plays t games because of age or whatever um right and like there are sometimes like you're plenty you're plenty old enough to play m games but because you have young kids in your house there have been games that you've really enjoyed but you've had to limit your play time and maybe miss titles in the in that ip because you you feel that you can't play them when your kids are around because they're not at an age where they can, you're ready for them to be exposed to what happens on screen or especially in the audio. Um, so 
it makes sense for the main line to be that introduction, that appeal to all. And then I think from there, you have a chance to introduce to your less um, wide reaching projects. Mm -hmm. Something niche on its own can really struggle. But if you love a mainline and you go, how do I get more? And they go, oh, we have these like seven titles that don't have the same marketing budget. They don't have the same development budget. They're not, you know, being front and center at every convention or award show. Then that's an introduction to say, wow, I really liked this. Okay, I liked Octopath Traveler. Now, where do I go from here? Yeah. Um, So there's still room for those. I just think that the the less wide reaching styles need to be those kind of supporting cast members um, because of the budget and the amount of time and effort that are going into these mainline titles. Yeah. I think that's important. I, what I would want, what I want is more, <laughs> you know, it's like more games, more, you know, like have a, if there was a, a new final fantasy game branded, whether it's, you know, whatever coming out every year, that's great. Now we have that kind of with 14 every two years, we know, Hey, new final fantasy games coming out every two years. That's ended up filling in more of the gap and maybe why final fantasy 14 you know, is able to appeal to a wider range of players because it, you know, it could encapsulate your high school. But um, I think that's where, and again, we'll probably talk about this uh, as we get a little bit, uh, finish this interview. That's where I think also the subscription model, why, why the free trial is so powerful, but then the subscription model ends up kind of acting as a, as a barrier um, in the, in the long run for it. So we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. But I see Chad also sounding off that final Fantasy seven R had better combat. I'm, I'm looking forward to playing it. I, uh, once I finish the Omni 90 and 14, which I'm so close, finishing Dancer, then I'll have Machinist and Bard. I'm so close. So I'm going to then hopefully get to spend some time with uh, with it before the uh, the Criterion Dungeons release, which is what I'm really looking forward to. All right. Uh, then there's Final Fantasy VII R, another prominent title that fuses the command system with action aspects. That's right. I think it's precisely because it's a remake of Final Fantasy VII that they aimed for a fusion of commands and actions that honors the sensibility players had back then. If so, it should benefit future Final Fantasy titles as well that Final Fantasy XVI has fully committed to an action-oriented approach. Doing so will expand the number of options available to whatever team is in charge of the next game. Otherwise, it becomes that much more difficult to go against the grain. If we instead tried to incorporate every element possible, we'd run the risk of creating a half-baked compromise of a game. Therefore, we concluded that even if it polarizes reception to some degree, we should pivot in this direction for now. I'm also a huge fan of action games, but my skill doesn't quite live up to how much I like playing them. Plus, action games always tend to tire me out. I'll be 50 years old next year. I'm no stranger to that feeling of coming home after a hard day's work and not wanting to get wrapped up in an even more intense conflict. I totally understand the desire to play nice and slow with commands so you can focus your attention on the scenario. That's why this time we've prepared a system that will allow even players who don't feel confident in their action combat abilities to have fun and comfortable experience. There's a category of items called accessories that Goliath can equip. By swapping these in and out, gamers can enjoy themselves using a playstyle that suits their taste. Is it some sort of system that semi-automates combat? To give you a more concrete example, there's one accessory called Pre-Impact Slowdown. It's not what it'll be called in the final game, but what it does is it slows everything down in just a few frames right before Clive is about to get hit with an attack. Then during that window, just by pressing R1, Clive will dodge the blow in a very stylish way. I think there are those who would still like to control the game in their own without having things be totally automated for them. 
those people can equip this accessory and enjoy a sense of control while having a very laid back action combat experience. Doing so really lets these players feel like they're pulling off something cool. Uh, of course, we prepared a wide range of accessories that let you do things like automatically evade or perform beautiful looking combos. There's even automatic evasion? That's right. If you equip an auto accessory, Clive can transition from one action to the next at the press of a button, using whatever combination is best suited for the situation. We prepared a whole host of these accessories, so if you want to enjoy the story with a more leisurely manner, you'll absolutely be able to do so. Do you have any uh, to advance to a certain point in the game before you can obtain these accessories? You do not. When you start the game, we present you with two modes, a story-focused and an action-focused hmm. one, uh, which you're given the chance to choose between. The content of the story will be identical regardless of which mode you select. If your priority is to take things easy, focus on the story, then you can choose the story-focused mode, in which case you'll begin with these accessories already in your loadout. During this mode, the game's protagonist will stylishly fight as you assume a decent amount of control over him, and the story will sort of move itself along for you. Meanwhile, the action focus mode doesn't get rid of these accessories. It allows for you to set Clive up as you see fit. At any rate, if you're confident in your action gaming abilities and wish to play this fully action-oriented Final Fantasy game without assistance, I'd suggest that you choose the action focused mode. I'm relieved to hear that there will be even more generous support with the combat than I anticipated. I think that you'll find is that at different parts of the game will be emphasized depending on what player chooses. And we've made sure that every experience is fully supported. Because this game doesn't feature a command system, we were very thorough while making it to provide assistance for players who might not be skilled at action combat. Therefore, we'd encourage players who aren't great at actions uh, games to give ours a try i wonder if there's gonna be like a demo or something like that because it's like well uh, yeah i encourage you at the se seven. Oh yeah oh yeah they were us for seven that was actually i think that would actually be very important in this case because at, at the other way otherwise you're like oh it's 70 bucks to to try to see if i i would i would like it ultimately um which is kind of always kind or of I have to trust a reviewer that has different taste than me. The hardest thing about reviewers is not like, I know people want to discredit certain, certain sources of reviews or thoughts on games. Mm -hmm. um, but what I found is, is that like, I just need somebody that's aligned with me. But the, the big problem there is that like my alignment has changed over the last 10 or 15 years mm -hmm. uh, of gaming as I've changed. And so like, I need somebody that has aged with me looking for all the same things. And like, what are the sheer odds uh, and so when I'm looking for a game to play with my brothers, I don't really care how good the music is or how good the story is. I want to know how good the multiplayer support is. Right. And so like a seven out of 10 doesn't tell me anything. I want to know why it's good and all that. And so when you're talking about something that's this different than the rest of the Final Fantasy games, I think you're right. I think I think a tech demo or something like that would be really great to let people see like, is this even something I'm interested in, especially at the cost of games these days? Mm-hmm. So I see the battle team as uh, this time includes uh, Suzuki, uh, who helped make such games as Devil May Cry. How do you say his addition to the project has impacted the development team? Tremendously. To put it bluntly, action games aren't Square Enix's strong suit, excluding the Kingdom Hearts team, that is. And Creative Business Unit 3 is no exception. Modern animation technology and skills have reached a very high level of sophistication, and we were sort of groping along trying to put something together, repeatedly making, breaking, and rebuilding things. It was during that cycle that Suzuki joined us, 
we took a timeout and gathered up all the pieces we had brought them to him. After asking him to boil things down and tell us what should be done, we were able to chart a course clear ahead. Not for nothing do we call him our battle director. Every single one of Clive's action battles has been built under his direction. Wow, so he's that essential. It sounds like if Suzuki had been there, the game's action combat might look a lot less convincing than it does now. That's right. Uh, he's worked alongside all those super-skilled animators over at Capcom. By comparison, the animators at Square Enix, though very good at what they do, have extremely little development experience when it comes to action games. I spoke with Suzuki and said that it would be most helpful if he could stick with them uh, in that regard and really get things going from the ground floor. Thanks to him, the whole team has shot up in terms of animation ability, and I think the material they've produced will prove very useful with whatever games Creative Visit User 3 goes to make in the future. Suzuki's now firmly established himself as a key member of Creative Business Unit 3. Is Mihiro also involved in the battle system with this game? Uh, he's the lead game designer, which means he has some say when it comes to battles, too. Uh, almost all of the game systems are determined by Takaya Mihiro, particularly when it comes to the final decisions, the two will confer and make up their minds together. At the end of the day, Final Fantasy 16 truly is their game. With Mihiro's battle systems, you really think, uh, and you get a sense that the player is manipulating the system instead of the other way around. Does this hold true with 16 as well? I think the last remnant might have really done a number on you. <laughs> I'll grant you that, and it seems more on my mind because of how you said earlier that 16 shares some of its sharp edges, but I do guess not quite to that extent. It was mostly the interview that assigned the sharp edges. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, not to that extent. I think it's because The Last Room is so thoroughly that type of game that it leaves such a strong impression. Moving on, I'd like to ask what you think the whole 16's team needs to achieve or, or or else already has achieved. Um, if I'm being honest, we don't really make games with such lofty goals in mind. Uh, having said that, what we do need to accomplish is to create Final Fantasy 16 with all the energy we can muster and make sure it sticks the landing. Doing so will be no minor feat. I think anything beyond that would be too much to hope for. To me, the most important thing is that we take the experience we gained here and carry it over to the next game that we work on without any break in momentum. Final Fantasy 16 is yet to be completed, but after we've polished it into the best product possible, we'll use the experience we gained and the assets we made to create something even more astounding. That's an objective we need to continue trying to achieve. It might be too early to ask this question, but will the game come equipped with a photo mode? Yeah, there's a photo mode. Is there any chance we might hold something like, say, a screenshot contest that makes use of the set photo mode? Mm, I'm not sure. We haven't given it that much thought yet. This might be one of those areas where 16 differs from 14 in terms of what it's all about. 14 is a title that plans far into the future and ex executes that plan incrementally. I think MMORPGs are games that let you enjoy yourself in the present while anticipating what lies ahead. 16, on the other hand, I think our first order of business is to release the game in as perfect a state as possible and let players really sink their teeth into it. Instead of considering things like future improving the photo mode or holding contests with it, our approach right now is to look at the parts of the main scenario and find ways to make those even more amazing. Of course, we've also got plans for what we'll do later down the line, but in my mind, I've really flipped the switch from 14 to 16. Fair enough. 
But looking at recent AAA titles, I myself am the kind of person who considers a photo mode to be one of those things players would, as you put, sink their teeth into. In fact, I think that these days there are a lot of people who continue playing with the photo mode even after completing the game. Some specific examples would be Ghost of Tsushima and Death Stranding. Death Stranding's turned into like a merchandising thing. Like I have a buddy that wears like the hat, he wears the hat that the guy wears in game, and like, but I think that wouldn't stand like that had the mm -hmm. game not been paradigm shifting like he he's like I, it literally changes the way he thinks about certain aspects of kind of the way the world works like he just kind of it was a total lens shift um just because it's such a brilliant standalone title mm -hmm. i see what you're saying well the photo mode is implemented and operational for now but if we find spare time to create a more involved feature like group pose from 14 we'll try that approach with a gung-ho attitude of making the core game even more spectacular but in all seriousness, we will keep in mind that players would like to see that sort of thing. Finally, do you think you could say a few words for those looking forward to Final Fantasy 16? Although I know it it makes for good PR, I don't think it's good policy in today's world to generate excessive hype. What I want to do now is honestly tell our audience about what we've been focusing on with Final Fantasy 16 that will set it apart. I'd like it if people would look forward to those things. These are the first interviews we're doing for Final Fantasy 16, and right now they're just being fielded by me, the producer. But around autumn, we'll plan to release the next big batch of information, as well as another trailer, at which point I'm hoping to bring Takai and Mihiro so we can delve deeper into the game. Autumn, you say? So then, it must be around that time. I'm looking forward to it. We didn't hear anything from me. Uh, <laughs> this time, you'll be getting a Final Fantasy title that's very clearly pivoted into an action experience. A game that will send you hurtling along at breakneck speed like you're on a roller coaster ride. We've made a Final Fantasy game that will make you feel as though you are controlling a blockbuster movie with your own two hands. I know I'm repeating myself, but instead of trying to accomplish anything and everything, and this time we've decided to focus on making extremely impactful content. Lastly, if you take a moment to rewatch the second trailer, there might just be a few new discoveries waiting for you. I hope everyone will stay excited as they wait for the next batch of info. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for your time today. And that concludes this epic interview. Again, guys, this will be included in the uh, link in the description for Not those of you who want to go read it. Crossing. Not Animal Crossing. What a shocker, right? Not housing. What a shocker. <laughs> Man, that was a lot. That was actually that was one of the things I was like, well, maybe we'll talk about what's going on with New World. But now we're like well over an hour uh, into the into the broadcast itself. And I think whether we do that as its own video uh, and discussion, um, you know, et cetera, then we'll, we'll have to kind of explore that. There is so much to really unpack here. I really am excited to see where they do go with 16. We know that it's targeted summer. We know that PS5 is what it is. They also, when they announced it, you know, did say for PC as well, but we haven't continued to see that kind of news. So this will have me, I guess, come spring 2023, if it's still saying PS5, you know, for the first six months or year, um, I think that's going to be, you know, that's going to force my hand and make me have to go get, uh, you know, a PS5 to make sure I can play 16 when it launches. What do you think? Um, I think at the cost of a PS5 and with how good the MMORPG genre is, it moves it into a game like God of War, where I just watch it on streams oh. on YouTube. Yeah. Um, and, and it would be sad to see that kind of shift for that, I think, because this is a game that sounds like it would be really fun for me to get hands on. But 
like the number of games that release, I can't play all of them. So like, that's not, it's not putting it in bad company. There are yeah. plenty of games that I think sound really fun that I just never make time for. Um, because we just have so many games these days. Like, like I play a lot of games in a week. Um, I slowly over the last year moved to where I play 30 or 40 hours of games every week. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes more like the launch of Endwalker week. I played preposterous amounts of, of Final Fantasy. I don't think I'm alone. I think everybody who could get online played a preposterous amount of Final Fantasy 14. Uh, but, you know, so if I have to pass on, I have to pass on it. But I think because I don't own a PS5, if they lock it down exclusively, it just kind of says, okay, well, I was having trouble managing my time. It sounded like a really good game. I guess you made that decision easy because then it's hmm. not it's not me that skipped the title. You skipped the title because right. you locked it away from me. Yeah, and it's weird because at some point I wonder what that what that kind of exclusivity costs and what it costs to maintain, right? We still don't see Final Fantasy 14 on the Xbox. We still don't see Final Fantasy 14 on GeForce Now, you know, and it comes down to it's like, what are we paying? Like, what are they paying for that? And are they just going to buy Square Enix? Because at some point you think that it might just be cheaper if they wanted to have that kind of experience. But it still goes against already what they're trying to do and we're seeing god of war and spider-man and things like that eventually come to pc so clearly this is going to be you know i I definitely is going to be a timed exclusive but a part of me like having like i don't you know outside of final fantasy 7 r which i was like well i'm i'll wait for ps5 and i finally have and i just haven't had time to play it you know outside of the final fantasy 7 remake you know kind of series perspective like that's i haven't missed a final fantasy game launch um in in my history like outside i I guess technically seven because i didn't actually own a playstation but i had the game so i bought the game and i just read the the manual until i was able to afford a playstation like a couple months mowed a lot of yards back in the day um yeah first party exclusives make a hundred percent sense to me um because it's a chance for a development studio to maybe have the inside track on upcoming hardware or show off what the hardware is meant to do as opposed to another another development team might choose not to accent the hardware because their development takes a different direction mm-hmm. but they can say like hey part of our job is to showcase what this hardware can do yeah and showcase what our dev kit can do and all of that and so it first party exclusives make 100% sense. Not everything first party needs to be exclusive, but I understand why those exist, especially with unique platforms like what Nintendo does, right? Like the Wii, where a lot of developers are like, I don't even know how you'd use that sort of thing. And they're like, okay, well, let us show you, right? Let us let us show you some of the cool things that this can do. And then you see things really come to it. Like I think Octopath plays really beautifully on the Switch. Uh, and, you know, but you can't necessarily have that available on launch day. Yeah. Uh, but third party exclusives are something I still struggle with. Third party exclusives are just something that just feels like. I guess I see the advantage from a competitive advantage, like if a new third party console launched today, like if the Steam box launched, how does Steam take on Xbox and because they don't have a lot of first party exclusive teams and they're not ready to pay for those because they're already busy paying for hardware. So like I understand that third party exclusives can exist as something to develop. I think like Epic has been a good example of like they're trying to take on Steam as a platform. They're going to have to buy some exclusives to get there because they just have to have something that invites people over. Yeah. But as you see these established household names like Sony and Xbox continue to buy up studios, um, especially when they're not purchasing the studio, they're not giving that studio extra resources. They're just purchasing, purchasing only exclusivity. That's something I really struggle with when it's not it's not like some of these titles. We heard some interviews with like Google um, mm-hmm. when they were doing their stuff where like some of these dev studios are like, hey, just so you guys know we literally didn't have the money to make this game without going exclusive. Right. So it, it provided right. something that well, would not exist. Street Fighter five, I think has the same, like the similar story. Capcom was really struggling. Sony stepped in and said, Hey, we want, you know, we want to help this out. These are our terms, sure. right? Like, okay, you 
I mean, you kind of at that point, you're funding, you're buying it like you're like spending the money. And at that point, though, especially in multiplayer, it's like, well, why not maximize your profits? You know, like, okay, like maybe have that the, the timed exclusive and then bring it elsewhere. And uh, it's good to see Final Fantasy, uh, Street Fighter Six actually go multi-plat in that regards. Uh, Mystera says, I feel it's like Square Enix and Sony are married in uh, just not ink. <laughs> it's like, how long yeah. does that need to be? Common like, law marriage. If the game right releases here? in summer, could they yeah. drop the exclusivity for the Christmas release cycle? And get I that big so. November push. I think that's like, what you like, want like, to what do. What feels ridiculous yeah. is that they're like locking like the, the, you know, they lock like a sports game away and they're like, oh, we're only locking away for a year. That's because it's it's worthless in a year. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if they're like, oh, we're going to lock 7R until the next 7R releases. Well, and we're seeing like uh, in Mysterio, it's also the same for Spoken. is uh, locked on some kind of two year contract etc two years just feels way too long it feels like that ship sails and then like especially in terms of a single player game it's like oh man like all right well in two years what's everybody going to be excited about and playing it the only way that really benefits that extra sale is that if there's you know that's where you see game pass coming in and just saying like all right in two years like it's going to be on game pass uh, and we'll have to wonder if they're if they can extend that if they can lock that down saying like oh game pass wants to pick that up do you guys have an option to to lock it back down for another year for x amount of money and you know like i guess it's it's going to be an interesting way to see how the industry kind of evolves and kind of plays around with uh here in the um in in the next you know decade because if that ends up being the case like you're killing a lot of hype you're killing a lot of resale um you're killing the ability to invite people into maybe a new franchise it's going to be a strange and wonderful future like it could go either way you know at this point because <laughs> it's like all right i'm not a fan of it so i have that conflict like i you know i was always planning on getting a ps5 i haven't been able to get one and then i wasn't able to i can't afford one right now so even if because i've had people message me they're like hey man i can help you find a ps5 it's like i i, I spent that money man <laughs> i was like it was ready to be spent i had to spend it and that's just the nature of life and so even if a PS5 just, and now they're like increasing the price of the PS5 uh, outside the U.S. And so it's like, okay, I get that. Absolutely true. Uh, it's just going to be, it's going to be crazy. But uh, on that note, like, I think that's a, there's a really good uh, part and kind of final thoughts to kind of wrap this up. Chris, uh, why don't you take us out? Why don't you wrap uh, any final thoughts you have up? Guys, this was awesome. Uh, I don't know. Brian's going to break this up on YouTube. Maybe it's just one long thing. Maybe it's multiple parts, but either way, thank you guys. Um, it's been incredible to, have so much news to talk about and so much gaming and we're looking forward to sharing more of that with you guys i do want to say thank you at the end here real quick to uh farmer girl care writer and book boy um for being the three largest people as far as just gifting subs over on twitch um as we stream more i appreciate you guys sharing with so many people the ability to kind of watch us ad free and, and feel welcome into the workforce um whether they just don't know who we are or they uh you know, and they're just getting introduced or they just aren't in a position to, to kind of do that. Um, thank you guys for making that possible. I do appreciate it. You guys have a great day. Come hang out with us all the time. We're going to be streaming so much more uh, and hopefully talking about the, it's, it's just such a good time to be a gamer. I feel like oh, I've yeah. been saying that for two years now. It's just such a good time to be a gamer. Yeah, we got lots of exciting things uh, on the horizon for Final Fantasy uh, 14 as well. If you guys aren't aware, the world first race is going on right now. Uh, Chris mm -hmm. is live reacting to it. So if you aren't following over on Twitch, be sure to go hang out there. Uh, we actually have more streams planned, especially in the evenings. I'll be picking up a couple of evenings, uh, mainly Monday, maybe Tuesdays as well. Uh, come join me for raids and leveling as uh, as I go forward. And then I do new world streams over on Twitch on Thursday. Fridays and there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in that game so we got a lot of really great like MMOs and the future of MMOs like uh, we haven't even talked about Ashes we haven't even talked about Blue Protocol talked about engine upgrades and the, like that timing is just surreal so 
anyway guys that's gonna wrap us up for today thanks so much for watching thanks so much for being here you're awesome and if you're listening to this in an audio form let me know like i always like to see who's listening into the audience to so sound off in the comments or wherever you're listening thanks for being here we love you and we'll see you next time take care